0: Good morning once again. I'm grateful uh, that you're here. We've been studying through the book of 1 John this summer, and we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5 this morning. Uh, That is the chapter where I took the title for this series, That You May Know. Those are the words that John writes in 1 John chapter 5 verse 13, where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And John wants us to know some really important things. And knowing that eternal life has been given by Jesus, John says, is the greatest among those things that he wants them to know. And he wants them not only to know it, but he wants them to know it with confidence. He doesn't want us to question eternity once we've received it. So we'll be reading in just a moment from uh, chapter 5, verse 1. If you'd like to Follow, or actually, we're going to start in verse 6, rather. If you want to follow along on, in your Bible or on your device, it will also be up here on the screen. I want to pray, though, as we begin our time in God's Word. Father, we come this morning uh, thankful for uh, creation, for the, the beauty that we just sang about, the skies and the earth, the grass and the flowers that we see. Uh, when we look at those things, we see you. We see a design that points to a designer, uh, that your hand has been involved in everything that we see, all that we are, and we pray this morning, God, as we open your word together, um, that you will give us uh, eyes to see uh, the spiritual truths that you want us to see in in Scripture. You'll give us ears to hear the things that we need to hear. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I heard a story uh, recently about a scoutmaster that took his Boy Scout troop Into the desert to teach them some basics of surviving in the desert. And so he says, the scoutmaster says to the boys, he says, Boys, what three things do you absolutely need if you get lost in the desert? And young Davey raises his hand and waves it back and forth furiously. And so the scoutmaster said, Davey, what are the things that you need if you get lost in the desert? And Davy said with confidence, you need a compass, you need a canteen, and you need a deck of carts. And the scoutmaster said, well, why do you need those things, Davy?" And Davey responded, he said, well, you need the compass so you can find your way, you can find directions. You need a canteen so you can fill it with water so you don't get dehydrated, you have something to drink. And the scoutmaster said, but, but Davy, why do you need the deck of carts? And David said, because what happens is when you get lost, you start right away playing solitaire, and as soon as you start playing solitaire, someone is going to walk up behind you, and they're going to say, put the red nine on the black ten. <laughs> our, our subject today is Jesus, which is my favorite subject to talk about. Jesus, the life that he brings, and the witness of the script, testimony of Scripture that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is John's primary message in the verses we're going to look at today. And I think John, if he were going to ask us a question about this passage we're going to look at this morning, he would say, what are the three things you need to find life in Jesus? John says there are three things that you need, and, and that if you find those three things, they'll lead you to life in the sun. And so I want to begin by reading from 1 John 5. We're going to begin, as I mentioned, in verse 6. This is what he writes. He says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts God's testimony. Whoever does not believe, God has made him out to be has believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony that God has given about his son. And this is the testimony John writes. God has given us eternal life And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I want to come back in just a minute to the first five verses. You'll notice we started in chapter 5, verse 6. We're going to come back to verses 1 through 5 in just a minute. But I'm starting here in verse 6 because I think that verse 6 and following is really at the heart of what John is trying to say in this part of his letter. What are the things you need if you're trying to find life in Jesus? You need water, you need the blood, and you need the spirit. But if you're like me, I I actually, I'm going to be honest, I came to this passage not really sure what John was saying, and I'm encouraged to know that after studying this passage in preparation for today, I came away and I learned something about uh, what John was saying. It's not immediately clear, probably, to most of us what exactly John is talking about. You need water, the water, the blood, and the spirit. So what exactly does he, does he mean? I want to read it again, just verses 6, 7, and 8, but I want you to hear it actually in the message uh, version, translation, paraphrase from Scripture, which is kind of a modern-day language uh, paraphrase of Scripture. This is what Eugene Peterson wrote in the message. He said, Jesus experienced a life-giving birth and a death-killing death, not only birth from the womb, but baptismal birth of his ministry and sacrificial death. And all the while, the Spirit is confirming the truth, the reality of God's presence at Jesus' baptism and at Jesus' crucifixion, bringing those occasions alive for us. A triple testimony, the Spirit, the baptism, the crucifixion, and the three in perfect agreement. So, usually in church, when we talk about testimonies or witness, it's actually the same word uh, here in this passage that gets translated in English, witness and testimony. But when we talk about that word testimony or being a witness in church, usually it's about you, know, you telling your testimony about something God has done in your life, or you witnessing for God on behalf of God to someone else. But here in John, 1 John chapter 5, John says that God actually witnesses to you. God witnesses for you. God says, I will take the stand and I will testify that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Savior, and that Jesus is Lord. And these three pieces of evidence that I'm going to give you as proof for my witness, my testimony, are the water, the blood, and the spirit. These are the three things that you need to be able to confirm who Jesus is, and they are all so incredibly important. And so I kind of walk through each one of these things. First of all, the water. The water says that Jesus is God. It's John taking us back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which Eugene Peterson referenced there in the message paraphrase. It's it's John taking us back to when Jesus was baptized. Matthew chapter 3 records this story. Many of you will remember. He says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and resting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This moment in Jesus' earthly life is the moment when God's personal testimony is announced to the world. It's God affirming who Jesus is. And notice that God doesn't affirm Jesus for Jesus' sake. Jesus knew who he was. God does this for us. We're the ones that need to know who this man is. And if I, if I could travel back, I don't know if you've thought about this before, if I could, but if I could travel back to some places in history, this scene of Jesus' baptism, for me, would probably be in my top five places that I would, moments in history that I would love to travel back to. I think it would be absolutely incredible to see Jesus baptized, first of all, and then to see heaven part and this voice from heaven appear. Can you imagine it? Hearing God affirm that Jesus is the Son of God, this is my Son, with Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Life would never be the same if you were to hear those words. And one reason this baptism moment is so important is because here in 1 John 5, John's church is dealing with a form of heresy that you've maybe heard of before called Gnosticism. Gnosticism Kind of the, the surrounding, the big idea about Gnosticism, is that it says that God can't be a man. God can't be a human being. It was a popular form of false teaching that that said that Jesus was only merely a man. That, that it doesn't really make sense, honestly, when you hear, when you think about their their way of thinking about it. They they believed Jesus did some things. Gnost, Gnostics did, but they they thought that that he was merely a man on whom like a Christ spirit might have descended in this moment in the baptism. But then, before his crucifixion, that spirit was gone, and he died just like every other person. And the reason they believe that is because they didn't believe that not not only could not God not be a man, but they believed that God would never die on a cross. And so this is why this belief of Gnosticism would suggest that Jesus said, they, they would take Jesus' statement, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross?" as their proof that he died like every other human being. God left him in that moment, and therefore he was not not God. And John says, oh no. God was a man, and God has given us three pieces of testimony as proof of this. And the first one is water. And it's God's affirmation in this baptism moment that Jesus is God's Son. And the second witness, the second testimony that John writes about is the blood or the crucifixion. What the blood says is that Jesus is Savior. So Jesus is God, water, Jesus is Savior, the blood. Back in chapter one, first John chapter one, John said that Jesus' blood purifies us from all sin. And now in chapter five, John draws on that idea and says that his blood, his death on the cross, has been submitted as the second piece of evidence for this for his case, the proof that Jesus has done what he's done is in the blood. There's an old song. He paid a debt. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. Part of what John is getting at is that prior to Jesus's life, the blood of goats and calves were what washed sins away, you know, removed sin from the people, allowed people to enter the presence of God. But Hebrews chapter 9 talks about the fact that Jesus didn't enter with the blood, the blood of calves and, and goats. Jesus entered by his own blood, Hebrews 9 says. And with his own blood, he secured our salvation. So that, that partly explains what John is talking about with the water and the blood. It also explains the practices that we have still to this day of baptism and of the Lord's Supper. Right? We are baptized, and what we are doing, there's a lot of things that are happening in baptism, but one of the things that we are doing is we are giving our public testimony that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what you're, you announced when you were baptized. You, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. This is one of the reasons we ask the question before we baptize someone. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And they say, I do. And then they get into the water and are baptized because this is part of what happens with our baptism is that we announce our testimony, joins with Jesus' testimony, with God's testimony about Jesus, and says, we believe it too. And then also every week we take the bread and we take the cup. And we do this every week to remember that what we're doing as we do those things is we are proclaiming that Jesus is Savior, that the blood of Christ has taken away our sins. So even in, our, even in these practices that we still incorporate into our faith and our life with Christ today, these are part of the reason that we do these things. Every week, these practices remain as witnesses about who Jesus is. You're announcing Christ as Savior until He returns again. But there's, there's one more witness that John talks about, and that's the witness of the Holy Spirit. John says in verse 6, it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is is truth. And what the so the, the water announces that Jesus is God's son, the blood that Jesus is Savior, and what the Spirit announces is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus' life and his ministry and his time on earth were saturated with the Holy Spirit. At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus is in one of the synagogues and, and he, a scroll is handed to him, and Jesus opens the scroll and it's, it's Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet. And this is what Jesus reads in that moment. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. So think about this. Everything that Jesus did that you you read about Jesus doing while he was on earth, was done in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus' disciples believed. They believed that Jesus could do what he did, miracles and healing and casting out demons, because he had been anointed by the Holy Spirit. It was the evidence, it was the witness, it was the testimony that Jesus was Lord over every other power and principality in the world. That there was no power greater than Christ. He had authority over all of it. This is why he was able to do the things that he was able to do. And the Holy Spirit, I think, actually still works this way. I want you to think about your own heart and the way that the Spirit works in your own heart. Romans 8.16 says that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. What does that mean? Right? I think this happens anytime you hear someone preach or teach from Scripture, and then something stirs in your heart and your faith increases, even just, if just a little bit. Right? What's happening in that moment is that God is giving witness through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is who God says He is. Right? What's happening in those moments is not the eloquence of the speaker or anything that they might say. It's that the Spirit, your Spirit, is bearing witness to the truth of Christ. So you, you recognize that, you feel that, you, start, you, you feel some sort of stirring or acknowledgement that that's true, that, that there's, there's some truth in that that I need to hear, right? And so your heart changes, your faith increases. And, and that happens because the Spirit is truth. The Spirit is sealing God's case that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Savior, and that Jesus is Lord. And another place in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says that we can't even say Jesus is Lord without the Spirit's help. Right? He says, therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Water and blood and Spirit. These are the three witnesses, and they are all in agreement that Jesus is God, Jesus is Savior, and that Jesus is is Lord. And so the thing I want to shift to is what happens. If we, if we receive these three witnesses as the evidence that Jesus is who we believe that he is, then what, how does that apply to our lives? What happens when we receive this testimony as true? John tells us in the beginning of chapter 5, and so we're going to look back in verse 1. This is what he writes. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves the child, Christ, as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep His commands. And His commands are not burdensome, Burdensome? burdensome. for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is is the son of God. When we receive God's testimony, John is saying of water and of blood and of spirit, we and we place our trust in Christ. What happens is that we're born of God. We become God's children. God becomes our father. And because God is our father, John says in verse 4, we are able to overcome the world. Maybe another way to say that is we are overcomers. Jesus was victorious over the greatest enemy, Death, which means if he's victorious over the greatest enemy, death, then he's also victorious over every other enemy that might stand in his way. And because we are God's children, follow this really quickly. This is really important. Because we are God's children, because we've been born of God, all of God's victories get passed on to us as his children. This is what it means to overcome the world that nothing that you or I experience can kill us, even if it kills us. What it means to overcome the world is that in Christ, nothing that you or I experience can kill us, even if it actually does kill us. Even if we die as a result of something that happens to us, in Christ, we aren't dying. We're going to live forever. Because Christ was victorious over the greatest enemy, death. Jesus said in John 16, Jesus said something in the Gospel of John. This, this John and 1 John is the same guy. And I think here in chapter 5 of 1 John, he's referencing something he wrote in his Gospel. In John 16, he wrote, he records Jesus saying, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world, Jesus says. And if you think about it, this is the way that it happens in human Parent child relationships. Children possess some things simply because they are the the children of their parents. They didn't work for it, they didn't earn it, they didn't do anything to deserve it. They simply have it because they have the status as the child of that parent, right? There are things children have, like food in the pantry, but just keep it simple they did nothing for like they just get that access to all of that because they are the children of the parents who purchased the food to put it in the pantry right and let me go this is the way it works in human relationships and john says it works the same way in our relationship with god all of god's blessings all of god's benefits all the victories that are attributed to god belong to the children because you are a part of the family If you remember the story of the prodigal son in in Luke 15, this, I think, is what the father was communicating to the oldest son. You remember the line he says in Luke 15? He says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. This oldest son was upset because he didn't get access to the same kind of party that the younger son got. And the father goes, everything I've had has always been yours. You're only questioning that now because I'm throwing a party for your younger brother who forgot that everything I had was his. Everything I have is yours. This, I I want us to hear as clearly as possible this morning, this is what it means to be God's child. Everything God has is yours. The older son didn't understand this because he didn't have eyes to see it. But there were certain rights, certain privileges that were given to him through no, no effort of his own, simply because he was the son of the right person, right? Paul actually talks a lot about this, and I, and I think it's so important, that I want to run through several places where Paul talks about this, so just hang with me for a couple more minutes. One of the pla- let's just look at these verses. One of the places in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So what is he saying? When Jesus died, we died with him. Okay, When Christ was buried, we were buried with him. When Christ was resurrected, we were resurrected with him. All the things that are ascribed to God, to Christ, you also receive as a part of the family. Romans 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 4 says, when We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. But that isn't all. Not only do we die with Christ, we're buried with Christ and we're raised with Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And you're like, well, how is that possible? Because I'm still here on earth. It's a spiritual thing that we can't physically see. But what Paul is saying is that in Christ, God has raised us up with him. So we get to We get the victory that has been ascribed to Christ, so Christ is seated in the heavenly realms. And so because we are a part of the body of Christ, the family of God, we also are seated in the heavenly realms. We have been raised and seated with Christ. And then Paul continues in Colossians 3, 4, that when Christ returns, we'll share in His glory. He says, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. What are these verses describing? What are they saying? They're saying that in Christ, you have a new spiritual position that you receive simply because you're a part of the right family. They're describing what happens when you become a child of God. You receive all the benefits of being a part of the family just because you're a part of the family. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty unbelievable that we did nothing to earn that, but we get all the benefit from it. You are an overcomer. That's the first thing that happens when we receive this testimony of water and blood and spirit as truth. And the second thing that John said is really important. The second thing that happens when we receive this testimony as true of water and blood and spirit is that following Jesus will be a delight and not a duty. Because following Jesus is intended to be a delight and not a duty. John says God's commands are not a burden. Following God God is, is intended to be a delight and not a duty. And what you and I know is that churches around the world are full of people that are there, not because they want to be there, not because they're glad to be there, but because they think that they have to be there. And I want you to hear me this morning, church, with all the love in my heart that I can muster. Following God out of duty means that we still haven't allowed the witness of God, the testimony of water and blood and spirit to change our hearts. People who follow God out of duty or obligation are still on the journey of grasping all that God is trying to communicate about Jesus And I think once we do grasp that, receive that, God's love takes over. It's no longer about law. It's no longer about about rules. It isn't a burden to obey God's commands. When you have a good father, it's not a burden to follow in the footsteps of that father. And once we allow this testimony of water and blood and spirit to settle into our hearts, what happens is that we trust fully in God as Father. We'll trust fully in the fact that no matter what happens to us in this life, that God has given us eternal life. And in addition to that, you'll want to be in worship. Not because you have to be here, but because you'll want to be where your soul can be nourished. You'll want to be where the body of Christ is as often as possible because you recognize something happens in that space that doesn't happen in other spaces where I put myself on a weekly basis. Our relationship with God, man. If there is anything you could, you you only hear one thing. Hear this: Our relationship with God was never, ever, ever meant to be about rules and regulations. No one, no person, no human being has a real, meaningful relationship with anyone that is based on rules and regulations. That isn't a relationship. That's a dictatorship. That's slavery. God wants a relationship with you. God wants our decision to follow him to be one of delight instead of duty or obligation. And John says this is what love for God is, to keep his commands with joy, willingly, because you trust that God is the good father that he is and that he has your best interest and my best interest In mind. And one way, just practically to think about this, I I want you, these are like rhetorical things I want you to think about. I think one way to do some honest evaluation about your relationship with God in how you view is is in how you view things like the Bible. How you view things, how you view God Himself, and how you view God's commands. If you just take those three examples: the Bible, God, and God's commands, here are a couple questions just to kind of let run around in your own mind? Do you believe, do you view the Bible as a, as a rule book with an impossible list of expectations that you must follow? Or do you read it as a love story that, that is designed to reveal God to you? How do you view the Bible? God, how, how do you view God? Do you, do you see God as a master to be obeyed or a father who is madly in love with you as his child? God's commands. Do you see God's commands as overwhelming and burdensome? Or do you see God's commands as if they're given with your best interest in mind? To guide you in the right path. To help you live the life that God imagines for you. To help you to live life to the full. The life that Jesus came to bring us. God has given us eternal life. And his name is is Jesus. And what John is interested in in these verses that we've looked at this morning is helping us to hold on to faith in Jesus. Who is it that overcomes the world? Verse 5 asks. It is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God and believes it to the very end until you give your last breath. John is saying that no matter what, hold on to what God has said about Jesus through the water and the blood and the Spirit, the world and the enemy. Will do everything they can to actively work against God's design for you and for, for me and for our hearts. They'll, the world and the enemy will do everything they can to convince us that it isn't real. And our role is to hold on to faith because John says, faith is the thing that will help us overcome. I want you to hear these words, imagine these words this morning like a, like a courtroom where God has been put on trial. And God, in this, these verses, 1 John chapter 5, verses 1-12, through 12, God has taken the witness stand. And on the witness stand, God has given testimony. And His testimony is water and blood and spirit. And He says these things are the proof that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Savior, and that Jesus is Lord. And I don't know about you, but as we sit out in the courtroom watching this trial unfold, I today am entrusting, I'm choosing to entrust my eternity to the truthfulness of the testimony of God. God has said, I am your witness, and I believe it with all my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. The invitation for you and for me today is to believe it too. Human testimony is okay, John says, but God has actually given his testimony, and no testimony is better than that. Maybe today you believe it for the first time. Maybe you believe it again. Maybe today you'd like to join Jesus in the water of baptism to announce, let your testimony be that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Or maybe you just need to recommit today to trust in these three witnesses, these three pieces of evidence, water and blood and spirit. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful today uh, that... That God has taken, that you've taken the stand, and that you have declared that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Savior, and that Jesus is Lord, and that you've given these these three witnesses, these three pieces of evidence of, of water and blood and spirit as proof about what you say is true. We see the evidence of this truth in our lives because we've seen you work, we've seen you move, we've seen you stir in our hearts. I saw this past week at church camp the way that this truth is proven to be true. And if we have eyes to see it, God, I believe that we will all see it in little and big ways in the coming days this next week. God, will you give us the ability to believe it again today, to stake our eternity on this promise, your testimony that Jesus is God, he is Savior, and he is Lord. And may this, this testimony change our lives. May we live into it today in new ways as we surrender our hearts to you again. We thank you for this good news that John has wrote about in this letter that's so old and yet so refreshing and new at the same time. We pray in the all-powerful name of our brother Jesus who made us part of the family and the church said amen. If you would stand with me this morning, we're going to have a time, another song. If you have any prayer needs, you certainly want to I invite you to share those. You can still text those in as well. Uh, and after this song, we'll, be, we'll close with a shepherd's prayer. Let's sing this together. I-